That music means your next hour is going to be about connection. Welcome to This Show is All About You, a show dedicated to discussing and experiencing the things we all have in common. When you and me become we and explore what it means for all of us. Here's your host, historian, writer, social commentator, and a whole lot of other things, J.D.K. Winnikin. Well, well, well. Welcome back. Glad to have you with me for another episode of This Show is All About You. Thanks for taking the next hour or so to spend with me wherever you are, whatever you happen to be doing, whether you're listening to this live or you're listening to this as a podcast. And remember, you can get this wherever you get your podcasts. I'd like to welcome you in for uh, this opportunity for us to kind of get underneath the stories of the day, uh, to take a pause and reflect on some things that we might all have in common, something that maybe we need to be doing a little bit more intentionally in these, in these days of what seemingly is a lot of tension and division and uncertainty, uh, both all around us in our communities and abroad. And uh, if I make that sound pretty dire, um, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but I think we have a lot more say in how we respond to it than we often give ourselves credit for. And so this show is all about us connecting on those things that some of them might be big, some of them might be small, but the idea is if we can connect on them as meaningful things, no matter big or small, that means we can connect on a lot of other things too. And maybe that's something that we would all benefit from moving forward. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about me, you can find out more about me at my website, wordsbyjdk.com. You can also find me on social media at Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just look up my last name, W-Y-N-E-K-E-N, and you'll find me rather easily. Would love to hear from you if you have any questions about the show, any topics you'd like me to cover. Would love to hear from you, and if nothing else, let's just connect. At the outset of the program, I always like to thank this show's steadfast sponsor, Airway Science for Kids. Airway Science for Kids is a nonprofit based down in the Portland, Oregon area that provides life and career pathway opportunities for underserved youth through the exploration of aerospace careers. And they do that not just by identifying and helping students move towards the hundreds of careers that are available in the aerospace world, but they do it in such a way that helps students better get to know themselves, to better um, advocate for themselves, to better connect with themselves, and then to expand that out to better connect within their families and in their larger communities. And that just has a ripple effect, and that's the whole idea. If you'd like to know more about the amazing work that Airway Science for Kids does, please check out their website at airsci.org, A-I-R-S-C-I dot org, and the link will also be available in the show notes going forward, so you uh, can find it there. So thanks to them. You'll hear more about them during the break. All right, so let's kick off this week's show on this Juneteenth uh, by taking a look, as we always do, starting off by taking a look at the news from the last week. I got a few items to go through today. What in the world is going on? Tonight, Ukraine striking Russian weapons and ammunition depots in unprecedented numbers. Sounds of ammunition burning off, filling the air in these unconfirmed images posted by Ukrainian officials. 12 sites damaged or destroyed in the last 24 hours, according to the Ukrainian military. The fighting across the front lines intense as Russian forces try to hold back the Ukrainian counteroffensive. Using equipment and ammunition from America and other key allies, Ukraine, however, saying it has made gains. 
And the long-awaited counteroffensive is fully underway in Ukraine. We've been talking about it for weeks, if not months, and it is upon us. And as expected by pretty much everybody who's been observing this, uh, it has been a bloodbath. It is very hard to follow uh, specifically what is going on in various locations. Uh, both the Russians and the Ukrainians use social media quite a bit. And if you have any social media literacy whatsoever, you know that you have to sort of, <laughs> there's got to be a grain of salt with some of these things. Uh, at all times. And so it's really, really difficult to get more, I guess, objective uh, views of what's happening on the ground. But what seems to be clear by the people who study this for a living around the world is that Ukraine is making some gains against Russia, but it is a very, very slow push and it is costly on all sides. The fact that the Ukrainians are targeting um, ammunition storage depots makes a lot of sense because the one thing that soldiers cannot do uh, is fight without ammunition. And to break further Russian morale and their ability to wage war, hitting those depots far behind the lines is a very skillful way to go about breaking an army. Whether that's actually going to happen or not uh, remains to be seen. And Russia has had some successes so far in various areas, um, and Ukraine has found success in various areas. The big concern that everybody has had in all of this is that if Ukraine could not make great breakthroughs, that it was going to signal that this was just going to turn increasingly into um, a stalemate and a meat grinding stalemate to not put not put too fine a point on it. Um, it is horrendous across the board. And of course, not only is it costing lives on the ground in eastern Ukraine, but this is all having a ripple effect on the civilian population of Ukraine and increasing political tensions in Europe as well as around the world. So we will keep our eyes closely peeled on what's happening there because I still think it's the most important thing going on in the world right now. It's why I lead the show with it every single week and will continue to do so. There are other things, though, going on, and in particular, something that still, when I step back and I think about it, boggles my mind is actually happening. Paragraph three of the indictment says, quote, the classified documents Trump stored in his boxes included information regarding defense and weapons capabilities of both the United States and foreign countries, United States nuclear programs, potential vulnerabilities of the United States and its allies to military attack, and plans for a possible retaliation in response to a foreign attack. The unauthorized disclosure of these classified documents could put at risk the national security of the United States foreign relations, the safety of the United States military and human sources, and the continued viability of sensitive intelligence collection methods. That was a whole lot of words right there. That's directly from the indictment of former President Trump, uh, the federal indictment that came down last week. I was out uh, last week. So I thought I should comment on it this week. Uh, this, of course, is over the, uh, the storage of classified documents that had not been uh, declassified and that the president and his people had not returned to the National Archives. That is a violation of the Espionage Act, an act that's almost 100 years old. And depending on where you sit on the political sides of the aisle, you might have very differing opinions. Chances are you do. And if you're like me, you there's a part of you has fatigue about the whole thing. The reason why I played that particular clip is just to, at times where I feel like, I am tired of hearing about something or someone, no matter who's talking about them. And in this case, the former president counts in my world, is sometimes I have to really bring my focus back to what truly matters. And that clip, I think, illustrates what clearly matters about this case. It is a seen as a deep threat by those who know 
about what these threats are to the national security of the United States. And the fact of the matter is, is that top secret documents on all of those things that were just listed are not only top secret, they're among the most sensitive types of information that any government can have about itself, about its allies, about its enemies. And for those to be sitting out in boxes where anybody could get to them, where either they could be stolen, they could be photographed, they could be talked about, is something that if we were not talking about this particular person, if we were talking about another president on either side of the political divide, people would be losing their minds over this threat to national security. That's what we would be talking about. Not so much whether a former president should be indicted or not. As far as I'm concerned, the law makes that clear. Nobody is exempt from the law, whether it's a former president or somebody who will never become close to being president. doesn't matter. That's why you have trials. That's why you have a legal system. That's how this is supposed to go. And the former president will have an opportunity to defend himself in court. And, of course, he is vigorously doing that, as is his right. And that's exactly how this needs to go. But the very fact that the whole national security side of this has been pushed off to the side and instead we're focusing on what this all means for, for former President Trump for the 2024 election, on one hand, I get. But on the other hand, there are supposed to be things that are bigger than simply just the political whims and the political demands of the moment. And it seems to me that national security should be one of those things. So when I talk about this with people who are, have varying different opinions on what should happen here, I think coming back to the sober reality that these are some of the nation's biggest secrets that were available for upwards of two years for anybody to look at in a pretty much a public place, as long as you were a member or could get access to inside of Mar-a-Lago, that to me is the big deal. This is something in this sense Former President Trump brought all of this on himself. All of it. It is in his lap, on his shoes, on his shoulders, and that of the people around him who did not help him reach a better decision or make the decision themselves to turn these documents back to the National Archives. Pretty simple. It's a self-inflicted wound, and it's a major one in terms of its implications for national security. Okay, and finally, it is Juneteenth. Let's talk a little bit about it. Juneteenth was not embraced as um, a national black holiday for a long, long time, but it was kept alive by black people in Texas. And that's what's so sweet about it. Our people have been hungry for holidays, hungry for tradition, hungry for stories about black history. Because? Because without a past, you have no future. Oh, I love that quote. Without a past, you have no future. And that, of course, talking about the holiday of Juneteenth, which is only in its second year, third year, excuse me, as um, as a federal holiday, Texas, the state of Texas, where it was born, uh, has been observing it since 1980. And prior to 2021, almost every state in the union had uh, statements on the books about Juneteenth. And of course, June 19th, 1865, the day when the final group of former slaves who had just been freed by the Union victory in the Civil War, they were in Texas, when they were finally notified by Union troops arriving at Galveston about the Emancipation Proclamation, which had said, under then-President Abraham Lincoln's order, that all slaves who were inside occupied Confederate territory, meaning Union troops were there, 
all those slaves were freed. That was the idea. Now, outlaw, the outlawing of slavery took the 13th Amendment to the Constitution. That was something that came about after the Emancipation Proclamation came into effect on January 1st, 1863, two years before. But since this was the last group, 250,000 former slaves were in Texas at the time, which was about one out of every five people in Texas at the time. When they were informed, that became sort of they were the last group. And hence, from that point, freed slaves in Texas began to celebrate every year on June 19th uh, what the National Museum of African American History calls a second Independence Day for the larger country. But certainly the Independence Day or Emancipation Day for all former slaves in the United States. And it has built momentum ever since. It's been celebrated in a number of places for a long time in black communities, but it's only been in the last handful of years that this has been something that has taken on more of a national profile. And with the political uh, environment that we live in, it is controversial in some quarters and not so controversial in other quarters. Uh, I heard somebody the other day, just in passing, as I was walking through a coffee shop, talk about Juneteenth as a made-up holiday. And my first reaction was, well, first of all, why do you have a problem with commemorating the end of slavery? <laughs> That's the first question I have. And second, every holiday is made up. Every single one. There are decisions made on how these are going to be how these are going to be celebrated and when they're going to be commemorated. Thanksgiving had to be established by decree. Uh, Christmas, Fourth of July, Memorial Day, all these holidays that we have valued over the years all started somewhere with a decision and they were made up and put into place. We happen to be living in a time period where we are growing through, going through the growing and maturation of this holiday on a national level. And what's interesting about that will be to see in 20, 25 years when it becomes probably bigger and more and more people recognize it and know it as a holiday that comes around every single year that probably will fade on some level, this, the whole newness of it, or that this is a made-up holiday, or why do we have to commemorate this? Uh, I think it's really important to commemorate because of it's one of the most important days in American history. How could it not be? When we're talking about the scourge of slavery, one, perhaps the biggest divisive issue and defining issue in the United States up to that point and then beyond it, how could we not be excited and how could we not want to commemorate the opportunity for freed slaves, of which there were almost a million, about 850,000 or more in 1865? How could we not be excited or willing to allow that group of people from that point in time to have their own past, to begin to build their own past, to begin to build their own story in freedom? That's the whole point. People who are in bondage to others do not have the opportunity to build their own history, to talk about it, to write about it, to be free within it, to structure it and tell the stories and pass them on from generation to generation in safety because slavery by its very definition does not allow for any of that. And I think sometimes we forget that in the heated rhetoric and in the short 30-second sound bites we get on social media about these various things. So Juneteenth for me, is a day to commemorate and a day to celebrate. It certainly does not, is not a part of my family traditions historically, 
Why would it be? But there is more than enough room in my world, more than enough room in my mind, more than enough room in my shared connection with humanity to not only be okay, quote unquote, with this holiday, but to celebrate it and to appreciate it and to reflect on the importance of it, not just for all black Americans, but for all Americans, period. And if that puts me, you know, at odds with some other people, I understand that. And I would also ask them, why are you really against it? And chances are, it's going to be an uncomfortable set of answers coming from them. Okay, so a little bit of an extended look at the news today, but that's okay. I had a lot on my mind about it. So, but I'm going to jump into a story that will be about Juneteenth, uh, a particularly remarkable story that maybe some of you have heard recently. But uh, for those of you who haven't, I'm going to tell you the story about a really important person in the story of Juneteenth when we come back from our first break here on This Show is All About You. See you in a minute. I'm Julia Cannell, Executive Director of Airway Science for Kids. We sponsor This Show is All About You because it exemplifies our core values, connectivity, communication, emotional intelligence, positivity, respect, and the power of possibility. Help us introduce historically excluded youth to all of these through the wonder and promise of aviation and aerospace careers. Airway Science for Kids, providing aerospace to all. Visit airsci.org to learn more and to contribute your talents. Welcome back, everyone, to this show is all about you on this Juneteenth, at least the day of this recording. And uh, I was going to the story of the day is going to be about Juneteenth and not so much the origins of it. I've covered that on this show before. And probably over the last few days, you've had the opportunity to see different pieces on it on the news or on YouTube or other places like that to find out about the history of it. But the history of the holiday itself uh, is an interesting one. As you heard in the news clip at the top of the show, uh, this was a what what historians have called a holiday from the ground up, meaning it's it was established by everyday people continuing to practice it over time, starting from the very the very start in 1865 and 1866 by freed slaves who began to commemorate that day as their own Independence Day, their own Emancipation Day. And in Texas in particular, but in other areas throughout first the American South, but then eventually in larger cities as we got into the 20th century, where there were sizable black populations, this holiday continued to gain currency. And it was, that's how it started. And it was a groundswell of practice, first and foremost, in black communities around the country. And then extended support uh, through, through political action, through social activism, in places like churches and community organizations and clubs and universities that over time led to the federalization, if you will, of this holiday that President Biden signed just a couple of years ago. And to tell you the story about this, there were obviously a lot of people involved in this process, but I'd like to tell you the story of one person in particular who was important. Uh, and let's rewind, tell the story of her life. Now let's go back to October of 1926, and we're going to start in Texas, particular Marshall, Texas, which is in eastern Texas, close to the Louisiana-Arkansas borders there on Texas. And so going back into the 19th century, prior to the Civil War, this was an area 
that not only were there a number of slaves, but it was a major avenue for the slave trade. Of course, the Mississippi River cutting right down between those states and emptying out at New Orleans, it was the Mississippi River was a major transit point uh, up and down that part of the U.S. interior for the slave trade. So, in 1926, October of that year, Marshall, Texas, uh, there was a girl born named Opal Lee. And she ended up becoming a very, very prominent person in this story of Juneteenth. She was the oldest of three children. And her great-grandmother, on her father's side, had been born into slavery in Louisiana. So this was very living memory for her family, for her parents and for her grandparents in particular, born in 1926. And that part of Texas, of course, in the 1920s, fully under Jim Crow laws, those laws that have been put in place after the end of Reconstruction of the Civil War in 1877 and codified by things uh, like the separate but equal rulings by the Supreme Court in the 1890s, uh, Plessy versus Ferguson, that case, and others, essentially meant uh, and led by Southern states to keep freed black Americans in servitude, secondary class citizens, despite the fact that the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution had, in theory, at least at the federal level, done away with all inequalities between uh, blacks and non-blacks in the United States. But that was not the case on the ground. And by the 1920s, not only were Jim Crow laws deeply rooted in the South, but all of the practices that went with them and all the organizations that fully supported them were in the process of making that a generational reality. By the time Opal Lee was born, of course, Reconstruction had been done for almost 50 years. And so you had two generations since the end of Reconstruction when Union soldiers left the South and left Southern states to run things on their own. Been two generations of this. And so it's fairly normalized, unfortunately, uh, on a lot of levels. In the 1920s as well, prior to Opal Lee being born, there had been a run of efforts throughout the American South to put up uh, monuments to Confederate uh, generals like Robert E. Lee uh, and others as a way to not only commemorate the Civil War, but to kind of whitewash the past and to remind, on one level, to remind black Southerners of who they were in the larger pecking order of the South, which was at the bottom. So Opalee was born into that environment in 1926. When she was 10, she and her family moved to Fort Worth. So they moved to the big city, just outside of Dallas. And parents did actually fairly well. And in 1939, they were doing so well, in fact, they bought a home in a predominantly white area of Fort Worth. That was in June of 1939. Well, that didn't go over well with this predominantly white neighborhood. And on June 19th, note the date, on June 19th, 1939, she was 12 years old, 500 white rioters vandalized and burned down the Lee home. 
later on she said that it's a often quoted uh, quote from her quote the fact that it happened on the 19th day of june has spurred me to make people understand that juneteenth is not just a festival so this was notable i mean this was they did this on a day being celebrated by black americans in texas so it was on purpose it's not just a coincidence that's the important thing to stress here so she grew up not only was she growing up with this awareness at 12 years old of the differences between her social standing and those of people who looked like her from white people in Texas. But she had undergone the trauma and experienced the trauma of violence perpetuated to keep that system in place. What this seemed to do, though, as these things often do, in the short term, it terrorized and terrified. In the long term, it motivated, inspired, and built resilience. In this case, in Opal Lee to do something about this. In 1952, after graduating from high school at age of 16, and getting married, then divorced, and having, a, having four children, Opal Lee went to college back in Marshall and became an elementary educator. She became a teacher. Makes sense on one level, right? And to do this, of course, she was going to be teaching in segregated schools. That was the law of the land at the time, or at least the allowed practice. But that same year, of course, you have the rumblings of what would eventually lead to the 1954 Supreme Court ruling that said separate but equal was actually unconstitutional. That was going to be in Little Rock, Arkansas, not far, actually, from Marshall, Texas. And so Opal Lee was beginning her teaching career just as the move for desegregation and the beginning of the civil rights movement was really getting underway. By the mid-50s, just a two or three years into her career, the Montgomery bus boycott was happening. Martin Luther King Jr. is becoming more and more of a household name and a game changer, not only in the civil rights movement, but in the larger national awareness and conscience about the status of race in America, particularly Jim Crow laws. In all of this, Lee continued to teach. She taught at various places in Texas, and she went back to school receiving a master's degree in counseling and guidance from the University of North Texas. And she returned to Fort Worth eventually. And after serving many years as a teacher, she spent 15 years as a counselor. Uh, and let's see, another nine, as a homeschool counselor also then for another nine years before she retired in 1977. So that was her career as an educator. So from 52 to 77, 25 years, Opal Lee invested herself in education at a time of incredible change in an incredible tension and turmoil, not just in American education system in the South, but also in the social and political fabric of the country at the time. In all of that, of course, were not just the civil rights movement, you had the Vietnam War in the midst of those as well, 
movement towards more equal rights for women in that time period. So Opal Lee was seeing a lot in all of this. She also, during her time as a teacher, but particularly after she retired in 1977, she had been an activist, inspired by what happened to her family home when she was younger and by her whole life experience and what she was seeing and experiencing and witnessing in education, she became involved in a lot of community organizations and became a vocal activist for a number of causes to bring about more equity and more equality for black Americans in the South as well as across the country. Now, with all of that, she began, she began to become a more prominent activist in Texas. She began to support largely Democratic candidates for governor, including Ann Richards, who eventually did become governor of Texas. She became an open supporter of presidential candidate Barack Obama later on. And she began a really interesting practice of taking, every time Fort Worth elected new city leaders, she would lead tours through the city of Fort Worth educating these new leaders on all these notable places in Fort Worth where her activism and the activism of the larger black community had been instrumental in shaping the fabric of the city, the politics of the city, and the influence that it had on national affairs. In particular, she wanted to see Juneteenth become a federal holiday. And so not only did she start talking about this a lot, but she began to put some of those things into action. She began, it's, it's really interesting. She did all this when she was in her 80s. She's now 96, by the way, still alive. She just spoke at the White House a few days ago. But when she was 89, she decided to conduct a symbolic walk in support of the federalization of Juneteenth from Fort Worth to Washington, D.C. That's 1,400 miles. <laughs> this was building off of an idea she had started a handful of years earlier where she would lead walks of 2.5 miles every year commemorating Juneteenth, essentially commemorating the two and a half years it took for the news of the Emancipation Proclamation to reach Texas. So she was doing these symbolic walks, and in 89, this was in 2016, she did this symbolic walk to Washington, D.C. She started it in September, ended it in January of 2017. And it garnered a lot of attention. Some of you might remember hearing about it. But she not only marched and did this walk, but she also took part in walks all over the country. Just a short list. Little Rock, Arkansas, Las Vegas, Nevada, Madison, Wisconsin, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Atlanta, Georgia, Selma, Alabama, throughout the Carolinas, and more. A handful of years ago, she started a, a petition at change.org, the great big petition site, to garner support for turning Juneteenth into a federal holiday and receive 1.6 million signatures, which was remarkable for that. And at 94, she got to see all of this come to fruition when Congress, overcoming just a handful of nay votes, all of them from Republicans, by the way. Congress passed federalization of Juneteenth as a holiday, the federal holiday with all the recognitions and practices that go with it. She got to sit with President Joe Biden at the bill signing ceremony 
and she got one of the pens that Biden used to sign the document as a thank you, a gift, and as a memento of all of her work, not just in the federalization of the holiday, but advocating for it and how she lived her life ever since that day. <laughs> you could actually say since the day she was born, but certainly since the day her family home was burned down on Juneteenth in 1939. As I mentioned, she just spoke the other day at the White House at a ceremony attended by both the president and the vice president. And she spoke about the importance in her mind and the experience of her life that if people could be taught to hate, they could be taught to love as well. And it was all of our responsibilities to try to see that through. So with that, I'm just barely giving you the, the details of her life. But what I wanted to highlight about this was twofold. One, for the beginning of the episode again today, this was a holiday made by the people who celebrated it. It had to be built from the ground up, as people say. Because there wasn't political support from this from the top at first. That had to be generated. That had to be built. And in this case, Opal Lee took a big portion of her life to push for this. And she didn't stop in her 70s. She didn't stop in her 80s. She hadn't stopped in her 90s. The, her willingness to work, her commitment to work, to advocate, to continue to push, to educate, to bring people together, to learn more. She's an educator. She believes in the power of that. Her example, I think, is a really powerful one. <laughs> we live in a period where everybody seems to want rapid change in one direction or another and tends to think that either by passing a law or outlawing something, that that will take care of the problem. We've seen it a lot in the last few years on a number of different fronts. Opalee's example suggests where the reality of things really lies. That depending on what we're talking about is the importance as, as important as a law might be. In the end, to build it into something that is supported, embraced, and integrated into the fabric, not only of a nation's practice, but of its conscience and of its character, takes time. In the case of this story about Juneteenth and about civil rights, it should not have taken this long. It is one of, if slavery is, one of the, big, is the biggest scourge in American history, not far behind it is the slow, slow realization of the promises of the 13th and 14th and 15th Amendments, not only for black Americans, but for all Americans across the board, no matter how they identify. That's right behind it. But it takes that level of commitment. And Opal Lee asked herself the question every day, as we all do. Do we choose to continue going forward to work for the things that matter to us? And when do we stop? When do we give up? In her case, she didn't. And it turned out to be vitally important. And she'll be the first to say her effort was just one among many. She could not have done it by herself. And that's true, too. We tend to have these ideas that just one of us can change everything wholesale. 
and certainly there are people in positions of authority and power who can do more in the moment than a lot of us can. But again, where does that power truly lie for something to become ingrained and integrated and practiced? It takes more than just one person. It takes more than just one moment. It takes a lot of time. More than it should, maybe. But that shouldn't matter as much, it seems to me, as the push to have something become what we want it to become. In this case, at least with Juneteenth, a holiday that people can truly appreciate and over time embrace and see as something worth commemorating. No matter whether we, any of us have direct ties back to slavery or not. As an American holiday and not just as a second Independence Day or a first Independence Day for black Americans. So just some stuff to think about today on this Juneteenth. When we come back from our second break here on this show is all about you, I'm going to be uh, taking some questions from listeners. I haven't done this in a little while and uh, got some fun things to talk about here in a little bit. So come on back on this show is all about you. Kids never have trouble dreaming about their future. The challenge is providing them the resources and opportunities to reach them. This is especially true from historically underserved communities. Fortunately, there's an organization that can help those dreams become reality. Airway Science for Kids helps underserved youth develop life and career pathways through exploration of aviation and aerospace. Using in-person and virtual programs, along with partnerships with companies, educational institutions, community health providers, and other resources, Airway Science for Kids helps students not only find their dream careers, but also learn how to better advocate for themselves and connect more effectively with their families, peers, and communities. To find out more, visit airsci.org. That's A-I-R-S-C-I dot org. Or email info at airsci.org. Airway Science for Kids, providing aerospace for all. Welcome back, everyone, to This Show is All About You. Hope you enjoyed that story about Opal Lee and the creation of Juneteenth as a federal holiday. And uh, wherever you are, I hope you are enjoying the day, no matter how you are spending it. Uh, so what I'd like to talk about here in this last part of the show is uh, I want to take some questions from listeners. I haven't done this in a while, and uh, I need to do it more because I oftentimes get really good questions. Uh, but I don't always necessarily bring them on the air. And I, I sort of want to do that a little bit more, primarily because uh, I really like seeing where my listeners are coming from. <laughs> it's, it's nice. Uh, if you're new to the show, you, uh, you might not know that I'm, I'm based up in the Pacific Northwest. That's where this show broadcasts from. Uh, but it's been really gratifying to see more and more people from uh, around the country and even outside the country uh, listening in and chiming in. And so I really encourage you, if you'd like to send in a question of your own, uh, to please do so. And you can do that at wordsbyjdk.com, my website, or through my social media feeds at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So uh, here's a few questions just to uh, top off the day. Uh, from Sandra in San Luis Obispo, California. Uh, a year ago, you shared some ways to help Ukraine. 
Can you share any ideas on how we can help now? Well, uh, I appreciate you asking about Ukraine. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, I, met, I start the top of the show every week with Ukraine. I've been doing that for over a year now since all of this started. It's, it's something that um, I find incredibly important, not only because I studied that part of the world and I've studied the history of those countries, particularly their history with each other, but also because it has a massive uh, global effect on so many things going on in the world. Um, so many, in fact, that it would be a full-time job to keep track of all of them, and even then uh, wouldn't be able to keep track of all those threads. But what can often get lost sometimes in that is that everyday people in Ukraine, the people who asked for none of this, the Ukrainian people themselves, are the ones suffering primarily in all of this. And, and not just suffering because they're losing loved ones at the front or their buildings are being blown up around them by Russian artillery. But the Russians have been attacking infrastructure for months. So attacking water supply, attacking electrical grids, uh, attack, you know, getting awfully close to nuclear power plants. Uh, they've been charged with blowing up a dam and flooding a whole area of southeastern Ukraine. So this causes day in, day out strife for Ukrainians, whether they're at the front or not. A country's infrastructure can't continue to get hammered as it's been hammered and not have it cause things like medical crises of various kinds, uh, food shortages, medicine shortages. This is exactly what Russia has resorted to. As soon as it became clear that they weren't going to conquer the country in just a couple of days, they seemingly, or Putin has seemingly decided that the best effort to erase the country as a whole seems to be the best alternative. So when you ask what can we do to continue to support them, certainly in terms of material, all the things that uh, people like Tanya Zyka, who's been on the show before, uh, and others have talked about, different organizations that provide relief in medicine, clothing, uh, <laughs> no, toys for kids who are refugees, uh, medical equipment. There are so many things that can be sent. And there are a number of organizations that uh, you can reach out to uh, for assistance. In fact, I'll put a few in the show notes for today uh, because there are so many where you can reach out and continue to provide support to Ukraine. That's the first part. The second part I would say is to remember not to lose our nerve or take our attention away from this important event. It's very easy to get Ukraine fatigue not to be pithy about it. But when you hear something about day after day and it doesn't seem to change, it just seems to be terrible, it just seems to be no end in sight, it's easy to just sort of file that away as in the, with the attitude, maybe subconscious, of let me know when something changes and I'll start caring again. That should not be an option in this case. The Ukrainian people are undergoing something that is first and foremost directly about them but has a long time ago, become something much bigger than just them. This is about the economic stability of the globe. It's about political alliances and the safety of the globe. Uh, the Russians are playing with something very, very dangerous in all of this. And it's requiring global attention to remain transfixed on it. So continuing to support political efforts to supply Ukraine with what it needs to win this war, I think, is really important. And that could be something as simple as reminding your, your congressional representatives that they need to continue to support these efforts. 
That, to me, makes as much of a difference in the bigger picture as anything else. Okay, a uh, question from Bradley in Austin, Texas, shifting this. Um, I have enjoyed your stories recently about the fighter aces and the Doolittle Raiders. If I wanted to read more about pilots, aircraft, and more in World War II, what books would you suggest? Uh, well, Bradley, there's <laughs> the, the good news is uh, there's a lot of books um, out there about World War II aviation. Uh, the bad news is there's a lot of books out there about World War II aviation. Uh, they're all over the place. There's so many. Um, a lot of the aces that I talked about have their own books that uh, they've written, and those are firsthand accounts, and those are always interesting. So Kelly Gross, who I talked about, has a book. Um, there's a number of others, and you can look up lists of, of aces um, at places like the American Fighter Aces Association website, and you can find usually links to their books there. If you're looking for ones that are sort of broader picture, uh, there's a lot to choose from. My personal favorites, uh, for example, how about uh, The Forgotten 500 by Gregory Freeman, uh, which is actually a story about a rescue mission uh, in World War II involving a lot of aircraft and aviation. That's a great one, The Forgotten 500. Uh, Stephen Ambrose, who I've talked about, and, and a lot of people know his name from Band of Brothers. He wrote that book. Also wrote a book called The Wild Blue, which was about B-24 Liberator crews flying bombing raids over Europe uh, during World War II. Uh, Michael Corda has got a book called With, the Wing, With Wings Like Eagles, which is about the Battle of Britain. That's about the British, um, not so much about Americans, uh, but nevertheless, it's still a good book. Uh, other books like Flyboys, uh, which is about Navy uh, fighter pilots and Navy bomber pilots is also really good. There's a whole bunch that you can choose from. So you have a wide range of things to read <laughs> out in front of you. But those are the ones that immediately come to mind. And I'm really glad you're interested in them because those are stories that um, if you didn't know they actually happened, so many of them you would never believe. That's sort of the nature of, of that in World War II. All right, uh, another one. Uh, David in Chicago. Uh, in an increasingly polarized environment, what do you see as the number one thing that any of us can do to overcome that? Um, I could do a whole show, if not more, <laughs> on that, David. Uh, but I will take a shot at it. Uh, it's similar to what I just said about Ukraine. It's very easy in our given moment to, when we see all the things that come at us, all the things that not only are distressing, but oftentimes the way they are packaged and talked about in the media are meant to produce reactions. It's, it can be really tough to not despair in those moments or to not feel overwhelmed in those, or to not be angry. Some things are worth being angry about. And it's really important for each of us to know what our own values are so that we then know exactly what we are standing against and why. To me, though, one of the things that has always anchored my fundamental belief about myself and about what I want to see from my community, from my country, is that despite all the various differences we might have politically, on laws, on morality or whatever, there is a fundamental connection between all of us as humans. We are all here together. And it's important to have boundaries and clear ideas about where we differ. And there also, seems to me, needs to be an equal recognition that we must find ways to coexist and cooperate around the things that maybe aren't specific to those differences, 
but have importance in how we live our lives and live them in ways where we feel safe, where we feel connected, where we feel like we are a part of something, and where we all feel free and equal in our opportunity. That, to me, is not only what the United States has always tried to be and always talked about being, but I think where a lot of people around the world would like to be. Maybe not in an American sense, but in their own personal sense. And to me, not forgetting that is the first thing. If you want something a little more specific than that, here's what I would say. The ability to recognize that each of us may not be right about everything. The ability to pause and consider that something might be different than what we think or what we believe, or that we might be right on someone, some things 100%, and we might be full of crap on something else. If we can pause, that's one step to being open to changing our minds, or to not having to duke out every single difference that we might have as if it's life and death. There are very few things going on in this country that need to be about life and death if everybody was to take a deep breath and recognize again that connectivity and that commonality that we all have, that we're all stuck here. And we can make things better for all of us, even if we have differences of opinion on things. And you know, I know some people think that sounds overly optimistic. Some people might call it Pollyannish. I don't care. I'd rather be Pollyannish on this and push a little further towards that and keep my sense of ease and connectivity and openness with other people than be quote unquote more realistic and be more divided and angst ridden and angry and bitter and isolated. We can all choose more than we think how we want to be and how we want to face these things and how we want to approach them. So I would say don't lose sight of that and don't lose connection with that and be open to pausing listening, changing one's mind. All right, and then finally, last question, an opportune one from Terry in Reno, Nevada. <laughs> That's where I was born, Terry. Do you know that? I was born there. What are your thoughts a year after the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe v. Wade? <laughs> well, that is coming up on a year, isn't it? Uh, end of this month, as a matter of fact. And um, I, it's interesting that you should ask that, Terry, because last year when that happened, when the Dobbs decision came down, I dedicated a whole episode to that. And in that episode, I asked the religious right in particular, that was the main driver behind this for decades. I asked them if they were ready for their close-up. And were they ready for what was going to come their way? What I predicted. I'm not, I'm not a big predictor. I don't believe in them very much. But I, I exempted myself that week and put forward some things that I thought might actually happen. And I'm actually planning to do a episode coming up here in the next couple of weeks that will revisit what I said a year ago and see what has happened since then and share some, maybe some new thoughts and some newer perspectives from that last time. So I'm going to answer your question by putting it off for a week or two and request that you listen in because I'm actually going to dedicate an episode to that coming up because I do have some thoughts about it. And there are some things that I was pretty sure were going to happen that ended up happening. They happened in ways that I didn't expect, as is often the case for any of us. But nevertheless, I think it's worth revisiting. 
So there you go. Thanks so much for those questions, everyone. It's, it's wonderful to hear from you. And if you want to ask any questions on your own, again, reach out to me at wordsbyjdk.com or find me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter and present those questions, and I'd be happy to address them on the air. All right. So thanks, everybody, for spending this time with me here on this episode of This Show Is All About You. Not only do I have to thank you, but I have to thank others as well. Remember, though, if you missed any of this episode or any other episodes of This Show Is All About You, you can get this show as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts, including from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Megaphone, and just about anywhere else. So thank yous. This Show Is All About You is produced and distributed by Hubbard Radio Seattle. Eric Ryder is my in-studio producer, editor, and mix master. Thanks, as always, Eric. Show is made possible by the generous sponsorship of Airway Science for Kids. Check them out at airsci.org. And the original theme music for this show is by Dave Nelson of Lens Group Media. Special thanks for contributing to this episode and all that went well for me this week has to go to Julia Cannell, Tawny and Dave Santabria, Bruce and Cindy Bullard, Bruce Flommer, Ashley Kniebel, Adelina Popescu, Ingrid Johnson, Daryl Sutherland, Dean Cameron, Brittany Johnson, Stacey Heller, Katie Beck, and Eric Crema. And to you listeners, thank you. I could not do this for you without you. And I normally end the every episode with a haiku. I forgot to write one. <laughs> so come up with your own haiku about Juneteenth. Send it to me. I'll read them on the air. Go. See you all next week, everybody. Until then, chins up, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>